Welcome back to the Naked Truth. Peace to you. We are in the book of Judges, Old Testament book, and we're up to chapter 4. If you want to read along with me, I'm going to begin with verse 1 as soon as I pull it up here. Um, and here we go. So, um, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel began again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the book of Judges, in a nutshell, is about the different leaders who took the place of first Moses, then Joshua. And now um, it's going to list off one by one or, you know, bit by bit, the different leaders who took the place of leading the congregation once they made it to the so-called promised land. Um, and it's not going to dwell on entire books of the Bible about them. Rather, um, at most, a chapter or two about them. That's what the whole book of Judges is about. Um, and in this book, we're, um, we made it to a female leader who's going to be leading the people. Um, so let's keep reading it. As always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these names. And speaking of names, just so we can check real quick, the name that the word Lord is being translated from in this verse um, is Jehovah again. So um, like we've read before, that's not always the case, but it is the case um, at this point in the narrative. Verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagoyim. So the area that we're talking about, you can use an Old Testament map and see the um, different areas that were being referred to here. Um, but the land is called Canaan. It's the same area that's now called the Holy Land or, you know, thought of as the Holy Land. And it's considered uh, it's also called Palestine and also called Israel. Um, but it's basically the same area of the world. Um, east of the Mediterranean Sea and west of the Jordan River. This, that's the general region that's being referred to here. Verse 3, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So it's clear there that this isn't a contemporaneous narrative. It's a retrospective where they're looking back on the different periods that the people who led the congregation um, um, the things that happened during those times and it's saying now a 20 year period that's being referred to where the people felt oppressed by um, the the inhabitants of the land but I mean you really can't blame them because the inhabitants of the land were there before them and the, the congregation went to their land to at first covet it and then secondarily massacre the people who lived there and then finally take the land, steal it from them, and take it as their own. So you can't really expect the inhabitants to roll out a red carpet for that. Um, and they aren't. Some of the lands are not just um, not being conquered. Some of them are putting up a fight. Um, verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the daughter, I'm sorry, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So it said that really casually, as if there had been other female leaders of the congregation, or I should say women leaders of the time, because just like we've seen where men aren't, men, not males, men aren't um, generally accepted to wear skirts in modern times, it wasn't always the case back then. Similarly, just because it's saying it's using a woman's name doesn't necessarily mean that it's a female. It's entirely possible that it's 
someone in between the genders. Um, but most likely it's a woman. So um, we'll just leave it at that simply. And also it says she's the wife of someone. Um, but anyway, so they had a female who was ruling over the people as far as being their leader at that time. Interestingly enough, not her husband, since she was married, wouldn't you? I would never think the husband would be the one calling the shots in such a patriarchal society, but that's not the case. And it could be because it's saying she's a prophetess, meaning she was believed to have a special spiritual connection to the divine. Verse 5, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she is acting as sort of a, like you would think of a witch doctor. She's uh, posted up in the wilderness or in the mountains for the people to go to her for the different judgments and almost certainly the different spiritual gifts that she seemed to have. Um, verse 6, Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun? So, well, first, let's, obviously, the first thing to not overlook is look who's um, a familiar name there, Barak, as in President Barack Obama is listed here in this verse. Um, though it looks like it's spelled slightly differently, it's probably pronounced the same way. And um, the translations of other names, Lord is still being translated from the name Jehovah, but God is being translated from the word Elohim. And like I've always said, if you want to read along with me or see the references that I'm using, if you don't have one of your own, you can go to the blueletterbible.org website. That's the what I'm using to read this with you now. Um, but beyond all that, she's giving orders with them for how to proceed in battle. So it's the um, armies, their um, soldiers, taking orders from a woman. And she's even telling them how many people to take to the battle. Verse 7, And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. So she's saying it almost as if she's the one causing the movements of both armies, the congregation of Israel and also the opposing army that they're going to face, since she's saying she's the one sending them against them. And that's what leads me to believe it's sort of like a witch doctor sort of role that she's playing here, um, since that's, if you've, ever, if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies, or um, the books even, or... Um, um, or anything like that. It seems that sort of similar feel where there's someone using magic and plain English to maneuver the moves that um, the different sides will take even to their battles. Verse 8, and Barak, but it also could be that she's prophesying that she's not actually sending them, but that she can see or foresee how the battles will, um, how the battle lines will form. Verse 8, and Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So he sounds like he's no fool. He's like, well, he'll follow her instruction to go lead the battle, but only if she too will go into the battle also. And then he says, and if she won't go, he won't go. So um, he he is believing her word that she has the power 
to see these sort of things or foresee these sort of things. But he also feels like, or at least is expressing concern, that um, it might be a little more insurance if she also goes. Because it seems maybe he thinks she'd be less likely to send him to a front where he might be killed if she, uh, if her neck is on the line also. So um, he's telling her if she goes, he'll go. And if not, he won't. Verse 9. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you're taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So she, it seems like she could have just as easily been prophesying that she would be the victor in the battle and the one who gets the glory for the victory since not only did she foresee it, but she's also taken up um, her hand to go into the battle also. And But she's prophesying to him, letting him know that she can see that um, the they will win, but he's not going to get the glory for the victory. And instead a woman will. Um, verse 10. So I would think that he's probably thinking, oh, well, I've insisted that she goes with me now she's going to get credit for the victory so he's probably thinking well, why should I go then if he's going to put his neck on the line and then a woman and he's probably thinking her will get the um she will probably get the glory for it but either way it sounds like he's still going to go anyway verse 10 and Barack caught because you know at the end of the day he probably wants safety for himself and his land and his people uh, even if he's not going to get credit for the battle Verse 10, And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. So he's being obedient to her prophecy and taking 10,000 men with him for the battle, and Deborah's joined him, just like she said she would, just like she'd agreed to. Verse 11, Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. So we're going to take a second to go into this verse um, because there's a contradiction here. Now Moses' father-in-law is being called Heber. We read before where his name was Jethro, and I seem to recall it being another name also. Um, it's not coming to my mind just now. But here we see it's, his name is being called Heber now. So either Moses also also had a third wife uh, who had a father or Jethro had other names he was known by. That seems unlikely, but possible since um, Israel himself had the name Jacob, which he was known by. And others have had sort of nicknames that they're known by. So it's not impossible, but it's almost certain that Moses had at least two, maybe even three wives along the way in his journey of his story in this part of it but then the next thing to notice is the kenite um there's like i mentioned before when we talked about the kenites there are religions or at least the church or some preachers nowadays who make a big deal about the kenites and how they're um saddled with all sorts of wickedness but look what they are also are what they truly are is part of the holy family or if you want to think of the israelites as the holy family which they would be considered since they're the lineage that Jesus Christ emerged from. Um, but look who's in their bloodline, the Kenites. And the Kenites, as we've discussed, are the descendants of Cain, the one who's considered the first murderer, the one who also was um, um, afraid he'd face the death penalty. And according to the narrative, God himself 
the Lord Almighty at that point in the narrative forbade anyone from taking out the death penalty on the first killing that took place, that murder of Cain when he killed Abel. So once again, modern day Bible thumpers prove themselves hypocrites in endorsing the state-sponsored state -sponsored murder, state-sanctioned state murder known as the death penalty and thinking it's biblically accurate according to the first, it's not as we've read again and again all the way back to the death of Cain and Abel or the murder of Cain by Abel a murder of Abel by Cain excuse me um so when people when religion tells you that about the Kenites and about murder and about the death penalty just realize that's all just religion that's all just people that's all not even accurate but it is a popular false narrative that has lasted many many generations and people just believe it because it's what they're told and thump a bible rather than opening it up and reading it so that's about heber that's about the kenites and that's also in moses family the next thing to notice is that um it says the one well the last thing to notice about this verse anyway is that notice how it talks about who heber was it says very plainly moses father-in-law there's another religion, there are preachers out there who will twist when it says in the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus' lineage, when it talks about Jesus' um, genealogy, and I think it's Matthew, don't hold me to that, but it's in the Gospels, and they'll read along and it'll say, uh, Joseph, as was supposed, the father of Jesus, and they'll twist that as was supposed to say that's supposed to say, um, that's what they're saying instead of saying in-law. That's not what it means at all. It means just what it says, as was supposed, as in people assumed that Joseph was Jesus' father because he was the male of the house, the man of the house, the head of the house. So that's what as was supposed means. It's not their way of saying in-laws because they knew how to say in-laws all the way back. Even before this verse, even before this chapter, we've seen the phrase in-law being used before. And it's used in the Gospels. So just realize when churches, preachers, teachers do things like that it's to mislead you whether it seems like it or not maybe even they don't mean to mislead you maybe they're misguided themselves but whatever the case may be it is misleading and what it'll cause you to do is fall into confusion and then just be tempted to just lean on whatever they say as being the truth rather than to seek out the truth yourself but like jesus tells us if you abide in my word you are my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free so it, if you know the truth of it, that as was supposed doesn't mean in-laws, then you can accept it as what it says rather than falling into the, a false narrative, a lie um, that someone from a pulpit told you and just accepting that as the truth. Um, the truth will set you free from those lies and from the trap of that sort of uh, bad religion. Because once you start down that path of believing um, falsities, it's a slippery slope. You're tempted to and easily fall into believing whatever that person who told you the lie tells you. And I wouldn't recommend that. Um, so verse 12, And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Ahinom, Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera, the commander of the opposing army, has gotten report that uh, his opposition are going up to battle or getting themselves ready for it. Verse 13, so Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harish Shephagoyim to the river Kishon. 
So Sisera has decided he's going to get ready to go to battle too. Verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So Deborah has given him the command to proceed in the battle, or with the battle, and to, and um, um, Barak has been obedient with his army of 10,000 to go in, uh, face Sisera, the ops, in battle. Verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. So, according to the narrative, just like um, Deborah had prophesied, the opposing army was led into basically a trap, an ambush, by um, to be cut off by Barak and his armies. And when he met the armies, he fled. He hid it. He ran away on foot from his chariot that he was trusting in. Verse 16, But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So according to this narrative, all 10,000 of the uh, army that um, Sisera had with him, was it 10,000 that he had? Um, all his army was slaughtered that day. Um, so Barak and his army prevailed, just like uh, Deborah had prophesied they would. Verse 17, however, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, played a pivotal role in it at this point in the narrative also, because it's, excuse me, because of all the places where um, Cicero could have went to for harbor, he ended up at the um, Kenite's house, at Heber the Kenite and his wife's house. Um, of all places. Verse 18, And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. So Jael, who's um, of the lineage of the children of Israel, since again, she's um, Moses' father-in-law. She's related to the children through Moses' father-in-law. And so she's offered him safe harbor and given him a blanket taking him in from the elements. Verse 19, Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink from thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. So she's comforted him with a blanket and even given him some uh, milk to drink, a jug of milk to drink, when he was just looking for some water and some safety. Verse 20, And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man there here? You shall say no. So he's telling her to stand guard for him. Uh, doesn't sound very brave uh, or chivalrous, but again, he's terrified. His army's been massacred and he's fled away on foot. Where he was, Whereas he was a commander of the army, now he's terrified and run for his life and hiding behind the woman's skirts. Verse 21, Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer 
in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary so he died so um sounds pretty brutal she gave him something to drink and harbor from his worries and even a blanket to comfort him so that he uh, and st- he sent, sent set her to stand guard for him from any dangers that might come apparently while he took a nap or got some rest because apparently he was weary as it says but um that ended up being his fatal mistake because she ended up killing him and the killing sounds brutal she drove a tent peg that'd be like a stake um not the steak you eat but a steak like you would stake a tent with um and just in case you don't know that's like it's like a giant nail um she's used that and driven that through his head all the way down through the ground um pretty vicious verse 22 and then as Barak pursued Sisera Jael came out to meet him and said to him come I will show you the man whom you seek and when he went into her her tent there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple so just like Deborah prophesied a woman was the one who ended up getting the final victory or at least glory for defeating the opposing army at the end of the day because she's the one who took out the commander uh, not with a sword, not with a gun, uh, not with a knife, but with a tent peg and a bowl of milk. Verse 20, a jug of milk. Verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. So they're giving God the credit uh, for guiding them through that victory um, at the hand of a woman, no less, over their opposing army that had pursued them and had them terrified um but they got the victory verse 24 and the hand of the children of israel grew stronger and stronger against jabin king of canaan until they had destroyed jabin king of canaan so they were able to conquer one of his um one of his generals one of his uh one of the, the soldiers in his army um with a woman and they continued to um fight against his forces uh, in his own land, Canaan, as it used to be called, um, as they went there to occupy and um, colonize it. Um, but that was the last verse in this chapter, so that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for reading along with me. I hope the Naked Truth is a blessing for you, and I hope you'll join me again. God bless you, I love you, and I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.